This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. It's the Honda Indy 200 from mid-Ohio, just north of Columbus and south of Cleveland, Ohio. Charlie Kimball could almost coast home and win it now as Charlie Kimball, the driver from Camarillo, California, in his 45th career start, will go to victory lane as the twin checkers wave. He'll finish 5.6 seconds in front of Simon Pagano as he wins the Honda Indy 200 at mid-Ohio. And right after the carousel, it will be a left turn and it will take him to the checkered flag. Here he goes, Ray Hall. He makes that final left turn. Checkered flags are out, and he's done it. Graham Ray Hall has won at Mid-Ohio hometown course, and he moves up further in the points. What a year this young man is having. Three more turns to go. Championship points at stake. At Rams at stake. Felix Rosenquist has a couple of more corners. His veteran teammate, Scott Dixon, trying to hold him up one more time. Final corner. Dixon wiggles to the line. Rosenquist on his gearbox dives into the side. Well done there, Scott. Scott Dixon will win one of the closest road course races we've seen for the 46th time. And the sixth time here at Mid-Ohio, Scott Dixon has done it. Twin checkers out, and Joseph Newgarden probably will be as relieved as any driver ever to get to victory lane. He wins the Honda Indy 200 at Mid-Ohio. I feel like anything that could be thrown at us has pretty much been done, uh, but we finally, you know, we knocked one down, put one on the board. We're just gonna, we're gonna have to do that probably three or four more times, um, but plenty capable. Tonight on Trackside, a look ahead to Sunday's return to Mid-Ohio. And this weekend is also usually when silly season heat, heats up. We're way past that point, though, since it started in February. But things are still getting closer to being resolved. We have confirmation on Felix Rosenquist, sort of. Okay, not really, but we'll try to explain the likely scenarios. There are unfortunately some uncertainties about the grid remaining the same the rest of the year. There's been some testing since IndyCar raced a couple of weeks ago at Road America, including Benjamin Peterson getting his first chance in an IndyCar yesterday at Sebring. The young Indy Lights driver will join us. We have more mid-season thoughts. F1 is reportedly cashing in with a new U.S. TV deal worth 10 to 15 times more the current one. That and more on the show tonight. Hello, welcome. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan. Sam Rumsa is in our MS Communications Worldwide Headquarters on Monument Circle in Indianapolis. We've got a full weekend coming up. IndyCar Sunday, noon here on the radio, 12.30 on NBC, uh, followed by IMSA on NBC from Canadian Tire Motorsports Park at 3 o'clock. The F1 British Grand Prix is Sunday morning just before 10. NASCAR's at Road America this weekend. That's on USA Network. Xfinity Saturday afternoon, Cup Sunday afternoon, right after IndyCar. So no head-to-head. That's good. 3 o'clock for them. Uh, and that might help when IndyCar is later on in USA. This is uh, going to jar some NASCAR people. I just saw the release come out that 23 of the 26 next NASCAR races are on USA. And many questions are going to be asked, well, wait a minute. Why aren't we on network television? Well, it's the timing of when the thing was signed. And it was signed earlier than the others. So 23, the next 23 between Xfinity and Cup races are going to be on USA. And we've got another SRX Saturday night on CBS at Stafford Speedway in Connecticut this time. We'll get into all of that coming up as well. Hello, Kurt. Welcome back to, well, not back to America, but back to the uh, Continental 48. 
Thanks. It was a it was a great trip. Uh, for those that weren't on the show last week, I made the the trip from uh, to Alaska and then took a cruise down to Vancouver. What a great! I mean, just an, really a, a tremendous part of the country. Uh, I had no idea that fifteen hundred miles of mountains could exist, but it was just mountains on every side uh, for seven days, and it was uh, it was just great. It was it was a fabulous time of the year to go. Uh, we didn't have too much happening on the IndyCar circuit. We had a nice little break, so we took that opportunity and and uh, just tremendous. And I wish I had a little more time in Vancouver. I never attended the kart race in Vancouver. Robin always took that assignment. I wonder why that happened the way it did, but <laughs> he took he took that gig. And so I, I would have liked to have seen where where they raced. I didn't get that opportunity. I had to get to the airport and fly home. But but uh, Vancouver is just a beautiful city and and. Uh, it's just it's spectacular. If if I could recommend something to do, I would. Uh, if you like being on a boat, uh, we spent a couple of days in 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 Alaska, just uh, in a car uh, with the senior vice president of the Burger Bash and his wife, and it Ooh. was um, it it was a great it was a great week. We had a great time, and and uh, would encourage anyone to make that trip. By the way, speaking of the Burger Bash, I may go ahead and make the announcement later on tonight about another public event coming up this this summer. But I want to get into the nuggets and the news. And the release came out last week from Aaron McLaren SP that solidified things without really solidifying things. Felix Rosenquist is staying with Aaron McLaren SP next year, but we don't know what he's going to be driving. And that uh, doesn't answer a lot of questions. And... You look at it from a couple of perspectives. You know, we go back to we think what what's going to happen. And I've been saying now for the last month or so, boy, I think Felix has got a really good chance unless that scenario happens where Errol McLaren can buy out a contract of one of the Ganassi drivers. It's been very clear that that's who they've been going after and whether they were going to get them or not, eh, I, I don't know. And then there are some possibilities out there otherwise. But as I was saying, you know, I think Felix – might be your best option. And I also know he's very well thought of. Uh, so look, let's look at it first, Kurt, from his perspective, why he would go ahead and sign something without certainty of where he's going to be, because I've not asked him this, but I know how most drivers feel and they want to be an Indy car. They, they, frankly, they take the Formula E ride because it pays really well and they don't have any other options. Well, I think you start with the fact that it pays really well. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and the fact he's able to get a McLaren racing different than McLaren SP, Aero, Aero SP, but he gets a McLaren contract. Uh, he likely then has a, has a car, a passenger car to, to, uh, to work with. He's got, he's got some security, um, I'm sure it's multi-year. I mean, it wouldn't just be a one-year deal. Uh, so he's going to have he's going to have some security at least for 2023, maybe even 2024. And I think I think you roll the dice because you know in, you're going to have a job, and you still got the inside track on on Aero McLaren SP. You've got Taylor Kyle, who has been very supportive of of Felix's efforts and his progress, and so. 
you know, we got the team president in your camp. And as you mentioned, he's very well liked within the organization. He's an easy guy to like. I mean, he's not a, he doesn't ruffle feathers. He, he doesn't point fingers at his teammates. He, he just does his job and he's a, he's a talented race car driver. I mean, I thought, uh, I thought Zach Brown's comments in, in the racer story were, were, were fitting. You know, he's a guy, Felix is a guy that has won races in both of these series, IndyCar and Formula E. And as they look to get the best option for their, for their two programs, they need to see, you know, if they find the best option for Formula E, it, great. If they find the best option for IndyCar, great. And if that happens to be Felix, all the better. And I think as we start to look at the silly season starting to wind down and the options less and less, I think Felix is probably going to be the one standing when it's all said and done. And, uh, and so I think that's a gamble we're taking. It's too good of a ride. It's a guarantee for at least 2023. And I bet it pays well. So uh, they've treated him right. He's treated them right. I think it's a, it's a good deal now that we know a little bit more about it. His quotes almost sounded like he was resigned to moving on from IndyCar and moving to Formula E, but I think there's a really strong chance he's here as well. And, and I think what it comes down to is he just decided, eh, I'm not really willing to gamble. I, I believe that part of him would have had the mindset of, I'm racing for Aero McLaren SP in IndyCar, or I'm racing for someone else in IndyCar. But then you look at the lay of the land and you start to think, well, wait a minute, if I'm not bringing any budget, where can I go? And there may not be anywhere that you can go. There might be, but there might not. Uh, so you sometimes have to gamble. And the best seat out there in IndyCar is going to be the one he's in right now, and even if it's only a 50% chance, that still might be worth it. And worst case scenario, he gets paid the same thing. Maybe there's even a, a sweetener that pays him more. Who knows? To move to Formula E for, for next season. Um, and also keep this in mind. I would think he has a pretty good idea of who the contenders are for his seat and what, what the likelihood of that is. For example... Who's he managed by? Stefan Johansson, who manages Scott Dixon. So there's one of the contenders that he's known. Uh, now, I suppose it's possible uh, that that could change. And, you know, maybe Scott is somewhat making this decision on his own. Uh, I'm going to guess they probably know what's happening with Alex Pillow. And by the way, the racer story today had quotes from Chip Ganassi saying, uh, my guys are under contract. I asked them if there's anything I need to know about, and they said no. So all is good, and it's going to be status quo for next year. And I suspect that's right. That makes the most sense. And that doesn't mean that Zach Brown won't come back in another month and a half and sweeten the buyout offer and hope that it's so much that Chip cannot turn it down. Keep in mind also that Chip just cashed out of the NASCAR program uh, last year. So I'm going to guess he's going to dig his heels in. The other thing to keep in mind is, and I'm going back and forth there, If you're, this is why I can't say 100% certainty that's the lineup, that those guys are not leaving. What if at some point later on, uh, one, one of these drivers says, I'm not leaving, I'm under contract, 
but I am leaving at the end of next year. So if I'm Chip Ganassi, you know, it's kind of like a, a baseball or a basketball team that faces a player that's a free agent. and They know they're not going to resign. And we see this every summer in baseball that players get traded uh, because they know they're not going to resign with the current team and you just get what you can out of them. Well, this, assuming this is the scenario that it's a buyout that would be needed, this is an option to actually cash in on someone when you're going to lose them in one more year. Now, my guess is Chip is still going to say, no, even if they're not happy right now, they're going to realize that this is the best place where they can win championships. I pay them pretty well and all will be good and we'll have a chance to retain them after the next year. But, you know, those are the scenarios that I see involving first the Chip Ganassi racing drivers as options. Well, I don't, I don't see Scott Dixon leaving. Honestly, I think he's at the point he, he, he would probably stay. I, I, I say, I, I don't see him leaving, but I, on another hand, I could see him leaving, but I think Pelosi the either. one more in play. But it's, you know, it's still 90-something percent rather than 100 <laughs> percent. That's right. I think Pelot's more more of an interesting uh, scenario for the for the reasons you just laid out, that he tells him, look, I, I'm going to stay. I'm happy. You, I signed a contract, and I'll, I'll be there in 2023. But, look, uh, I'm on a rookie deal, and I came pretty cheap, and I'm going to want good money in 2024. And if you don't think you're willing to pay X – in 2024, then I need to move on in 2024. And so then you, you start to put together the pieces that would lead uh, Alex to leave Chip at the end of this season because he's going to be gone anyway in 2024. Now, I don't know that that's, that's the path, but I at least can understand the path. And to your point about how it happens in other sports, you cut your losses uh, – but the, the thing to factor in, and I, I applaud Marshall for, for throwing this into the story. Uh, I would hate to deal with the repercussions of it if, if it's a problem for the two individuals. But uh, Zach Brown and, and Chip Ganassi don't seem to be on the best of terms. And if Chip wants to dig his heels in, uh, Chip can afford to do that. And, and so that's an interesting dynamic in play. And if... Um, like I said, if Chip wants to dig in, Chip could dig in. And but ultimately, I think getting you back to your point about about uh, Felix Rosenquist, yes, I think he knows the options that are out there. He looks at Scott Dixon uh, through his own agent and shared agent and says Scott's probably not leaving. And Stephen Johansson would be plugged into Alex Pelot's situation to some degree, and he's probably informed Felix. Look, my hunches are he's not leaving in 2023 either. And so then he looks around the landscape and says, if it's me or Remus VK, I think I like my chances given my my relationship with the race team, Errol McLaren SP, and the fact that uh, Remus VK hasn't hasn't had a dynamic calendar year uh, since he was injured last year in the uh, cycling accident. You can look at his results over the last calendar year, and it doesn't wow you the way it was uh, previously. So, so I think, you know, you look around the landscape beyond, beyond, uh, Remus VK and the two Ganassi drivers, and I don't see anybody else better than, than Felix Rosenquist for the ride that Errol McLaren SP has. And by the way, it's, it's a ride, as you mentioned, that doesn't come with bringing budget, which Felix doesn't, doesn't do. So I think all things lead to the fact that if I'm Felix, I'm signing up for security and a better than 50, 50 odds, 
that I'm going to be the one to emerge for the IndyCar seat in 2023. Just one more thought on Scott Dixon, because I agree with you that I would be surprised if he ever left Chip Ganassi Racing. But let's also understand, while he's been well-paid in the IndyCar world, uh, and, and many believe he's been the highest-paid driver for a little while, um, and, and that's money that you and I will never understand and never make combined in our lifetime. It's still the same as a professional athlete is concerned that a backup middle infielder makes. So money still can talk. And you've been making nice money for a little while, but you pay the government almost half of that when you're at that bracket. I'm not crying for Scott Dixon. He's doing fine. But th there still is a number out there that can potentially sway people especially if it's something that guarantees you income after you're done driving and make sure you don't ever want for anything and you can disappear and do whatever you want or be a consultant. Maybe it's partial ownership. Uh, maybe the McLaren name, Bruce McLaren, fellow Kiwi, means something to Scott Dixon. That's why I can't just dismiss that because I think McLaren is capable, of, if they want, paying him $10 million a year. And no one in IndyCar can do anything close to that. Maybe that number is a little bit high, but whatever. They can go way above everyone else. So that's why you can't fully dismiss that. And just something to keep an eye on moving forward. But I'll still go back to, I think Scott Dixon finished his career with Chip Ganassi Racing. But I'm sure the numbers that are being tossed out there are making him at least do a double take and think, mm, I at least got to consider this for my family, my kids, my wife's family, and everything else. Now, back to Felix and his decision. So what if they are still after already thinking about 2024 and they think they're going to get Alex Pillow? If you're Felix Rosenquist, what, what I want to know is, all right, so I'm your IndyCar driver for next year. Um, am I going to have a spot in Formula E if you bounce me out after next year? Or do I need to get to Formula E now? Maybe it's in his best long-term interest to just move over to Formula E at this point. Could be. Could be. I think he would like to take his chances on another season in IndyCar. But uh, to your point, I think it, you know, he knows the landscape in Formula E. He knows the dollar figures that he could command. Uh, he would be instantly a, a contender to ra win races and championships. And as you mentioned many times on this show, it pays well in Formula E. They're, the budgets are strong. So, you know, it might behoove him to move on now. But I think ultimately he's banking on the fact that he's going to get a He has a really strong likelihood of, of sticking in IndyCar one more year. And if he wins a race... You know they're going to have a, a obviously a solid chance to win races everywhere they go this time next year, and they already are a, a leading contender to win most races. So I think I like his chances uh, yeah. to score another victory, and if he does that, he can start to name his own prize. And I'm sure he'd gamble on himself getting another year in IndyCar. And also keep in mind, by the way, who's to say that Pato Award hasn't moved to Formula One in 2024, and they have two open seats. Or, or another full open seat. You know, maybe Alex Pillow is just coming over to replace Pato Award in 2024. And I would think there's probably some sort of option for the driver. You know, if he, uh, say they do like an Alexander Rossi deal and sign him before next year even starts, 
and Alex or and, and I'm sorry, Felix Rosenquist wins three races and wins the championship or finishes second or third in the championship. There's probably uh, an out in there, which would allow him to become a free agent and someone else in IndyCar would hire him. As far as Renus VK is concerned, the other thing this kind of does is buy them time. Apparently Renus can't openly negotiate. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of wink, wink conversations going on as there is in every sport, but he's not allowed to talk to anyone, according to what I've read, until August 1st. Uh, so this also buys everyone some time on that front. And I think it buys Errol McLaren SP some time. They may not have made up their mind yet. They may want to see, all right, uh, if Renus doesn't have a couple of good results, no, we're not interested. And then it's the only other options are, you know, is it Callum Eilat? Uh Are you going to bank on him? M- maybe. I'd be surprised if they hired a rookie, but is it maybe Linus Lundquist, who is likely to win the Indy Lights Championship? Is it Daniel Ricardo being demoted from Formula One? I doubt that too. I, I really doubt that, and I don't know how the numbers work there. If you continue to pay him whatever he's making, fifteen or twenty million a year, and allocate him to IndyCar, so my best guess is it's Renus VK. Or Felix Rosenquist, and if I had to guess right now, I'm going to say it's Felix Rosenquist. So I would say it's either Alex Pillow or Felix Rosenquist. I think if you've in looked at the last cap in 23, okay. If you look at the last calendar year, how could you argue that that Renus VK is a slam dunk over Felix Rosenquist with that team, given Felix's embedment with that team? You know, with the success that he's shown lately. Uh, certainly finishing fourth in Indianapolis 500 is a very important piece to this. Is there anything that, I mean, short of Renus winning a couple races in July, um, is there anything that tells you that, that uh, he could, that he's going to win the job over Felix Rosenquist? And I, I'm not sure there is. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure either. And that's probably it, uh, that it's just, we'll leave this vague and we're going to make one more run later in the year. And and here's why they can wait. They could even wait until after the season is over. They can wait until after the season is over because they've got their backup plan. Now, that doesn't give them a lot of time to, to plan for Formula E. Well, they may make a backup plan for that. They may sign someone to a testing program or development program for Formula E or have – let's face it, there are plenty of -of out-of-work Formula One drivers that they are going to be able to sign up to run Formula E. And they can do both, generally speaking. They can run Formula E and still be some sort of reserve driver in a Formula One program. Yeah, I I think that's that's it. Yep. I I think it's it's make one more run at Polo and and see where he lands, you know, with his decision relative to 24 or – you keep Felix Rosenquist and and uh, you go one more year with it. And then in 24, you've got all kinds of options or at least more options uh, if, uh, you know, if, if Felix hasn't delivered. But I, I think, you know, he's on the right track and they like him. And when the team president is lobbying for him, I think that's uh, that's really strong in his favor. And, and going back to what you referenced from Racer today with Chip Ganassi versus Zach Brown, this kind of goes back to uh, they made a run at Scott Dixon in, I think it was 2018. Then they ultimately signed Felix Rosenquist when Ganassi wanted to retain him. 
a couple of years ago. Now they've made a run at a couple of other drivers. But Zach Brown was quick to point out, hey, they tried to go get Pato Award this year. So, And, and then he said you know, he's trying to, to stay above board on everything and take the high road. He said, and by the way, I expect that. We have good drivers. We know that we have to retain our drivers before they get to the end of their contracts because they're good and we expect people to go after our drivers that's a nice little rivalry going on everybody plays really nice as far as the driver group is concerned um you know they may yell at each other after the race but then by monday it's apologies and all all is good kumbaya but uh there's not going to be any kumbaya there no, and and this takes us a different path. But what if the pairing at Aero McLaren SP in twenty twenty four is uh, Colton Herta and Alexander Rossi? Uh, you know, anything is possible at this time, given the the newfound kind of bonding between between uh, between Zach Brown and and Colton Herta. So, look, exactly. it can go any number of ways. But but I think uh, I think Felix will be there in twenty three. All right, so that's one story. We'll touch on this story in this segment. Uh, and unfortunately, this is more on the negative side of things. A lot of rumors have been swirling for a little while. I think I first saw something in early May when somebody sent me a screenshot uh, of a story about financial difficulties and bankruptcy of the U.S. arm of Rocket and wondering how that was going to impact A.J. Foyt's program. And Larry had said, uh, I think publicly a month or so ago, that everything's fine. We saw some reports this weekend or this week that the 11 car and Tatiana Calderon might not be at mid-Ohio. That's been refuted, but Larry has confirmed that there are concerns. He said, I know Rocket wishes to continue the program, but there are some issues which may prevent that. We will continue to either resolve it or try to find alternate funding, which is difficult at best at this point. And he added that running the 14 is not sponsorship dependent. Some have wondered that because Rocket also appears on that car and have asked, well, wait a minute, how can that be? Why is it only 11 that's in peril? Well, my guess on that would be, you know, that they had already done the deal for Kyle Kirkwood. He was set to run this year and the, the 11 car came together late. And that's probably more of a, hey, if you pay to run that car, whatever the number is, whether it was more than it takes to run that car or not, as a bonus, we will put your logo on the 14 car, which we think is going to get a lot of attention this year, and frankly, a lot more than the number 11 car. Uh, Rocket wanted, they were tied and aligned with Tatiana Calderon. That's how she ended up in IndyCar with the Foyt team, but that's how that works. And they already had some budget with the Indy Light Scholarship, and, and who knows, you know, I hope Larry... And the Foy family are not paying out of their pocket, but they wouldn't be the first to do that to subsidize things for a little while. And this probably also confirms what I feared when J.R. Hildebrand basically tweeted, yeah, I went to Iowa, but I didn't get to get in the car. Uh, he's a rocket driver in the number 11. So I hope this doesn't impact J.R. or they can come up with something to keep him going on the oval races. Where Remember, he's been really, really good at Iowa. That's coming up. And the team has been pretty good at Gateway as well to finish the season. So they'll run this weekend. We don't know what it is. Someone, was it Racer, uh, suggested maybe our guest later in the show tonight, maybe Benjamin Peterson could slot in to run some races in that car later on this year. Uh, I think he was supposed to test for Foyt, but testing limitations kept that from happening. So he tested with Hunkos Hollinger yesterday at Sebring. But 
I guess we can ask Benjamin that. I don't think he's going to be able to speak to that. That's for someone else to decide. But those are some of the, the issues going around, and we hope the best for uh, all the financials there, and, and hopefully things work out financially for Rocket to be able to continue this season and beyond. Well, it's it's very difficult. I mean, obviously, uh, there's so many people involved other than just the uh, the drivers and the race team. I mean, the race team has got crew members, and you know, I, I know they're yep. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure uh, and uh, you know outlets to this, and and it affects a lot of people. And yep. you know, when we see programs go away, it uh, it does more than just affect the driver. You know, we talk about the driver because that's what people are interested in. But when a team goes from four cars to three cars or goes from, you know, two cars to one car or gets out of the sport, it affects a lot of people. And and uh, the Foyts have been obviously tremendous uh, backers in this this series and, and this sport. And um, as you as you just mentioned, I hope they are not paying for some of this out of their pocket. I doubt they are, and they'll make the hard decision to to go to two cars if that's what it's necessary. But uh, you still hate to see it. Uh, the only positive out of that is if a program does shut down, my guess is most, if not all, of those crew members would have job offers the next day in some form of motorsport because everyone is struggling. Maybe it's maybe it's an Indy Lights. But all through every paddock, IMSA, whatever the case is, and especially in the summertime with there, there are several uh, teams not going to the IMSA race at Mosport this weekend because they don't have enough crew members that are vaccinated. And I know some road dandy teams are dealing with that for the Toronto race coming up and IndyCar will be dealing with that as well. Some of the shop based people are going to be going because there are uh, stringent restrictions involved to attending these races. All right, coming up, we'll get into your Twitter questions, comments at Kevin Lee 23. A lot of things still to get into uh, this weekend at mid Ohio. We've got some uh, television news. We'll deal with Indy lights news and more all coming up trackside 93.5 and 107.5. The fan. Hi, this is Kyle Kirkwood and you're listening to trackside. Let's get into some Twitter questions at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cabin on the program tonight. Uh, this from Mike Wilson at Mike Wilson 2424. There's been some talk about 27 cars being too many for the pit row at mid Ohio thoughts. It'll be tight, uh, but they'll make it work. I think I read today that there have been as many as 28 there before back in the cart days, so it's less than ideal, and there'll be 35 feet pit boxes, which is the smallest that, that I can recall seeing and maybe the smallest they would allow. Um, you know, people say, well, they start bumping at some of these other races. You know, my guess is you'll know that going into a season if you're going to have more than, you know, they, IndyCar knows this in advance. If somebody's planning a one-off and you could have more. And I think what would probably happen is when a team owner says, hey, we're planning on doing a one-off in mid-Ohio, they would be told, uh, can you do that at Road America? Uh, how about somewhere else? How about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? We don't have room for you at Toronto or mid-Ohio. And it would just be kind of done behind closed doors. They're not going to start bumping at these races. That's right. That's right. Uh, and if they knew that going into a season, that'd be different. 
uh, really the, the only two places that I can think of that would be problematic with extra cars, Toronto and Mid-Ohio. Mid-Ohio is tight, even with 24 cars. I mean, it just mm-hmm. is. I mean, it's not as tight, obviously, but I cringe every time there's a full, full, full course caution at Mid-Ohio, especially early in the race and everybody's still on the lead lap. I mean, it's just tight. And I'm not even standing in, in pit boxes like you are. Uh, it's, it's just going to be tight. And the teams all know it. And they'll, they'll take, you know, some extra precautions. But those guys are always on high alert. But it's, it's going to be – it's always hold your breath, always at Mid-Ohio. So I'll bring something up that people in the paddock involved the sport have brought up before. Should IndyCar have a car limit or franchises? You know, the argument could potentially be made instead of let's think let's think about it this way. Does having 26, 27 or 28 cars make the show any better than if you have 23 or 24 cars? Is it any better? Are those last three or four doing anything to increase our entertainment? So that's kind of a, a hypothetical question uh, from that standpoint. And then the other aspect would be if you had fewer cars, would that make the 23 or 24 stronger than having 26 or 27? So is there and, – and then I'll even go on the other side of that – and argue against that. Um, the problem would be if you limit it and tell people they can't come in and say cap it at 24 and you've got Don Cusick coming in and wanting to run four races next year or whoever, maybe it's even a full-time program, and you've told him no, well, then what happens if one of your 24, what happens if one of your 24 that has five cars packs up and goes home and you've told someone, I'm sorry, you're not needed, and they've started an IMSA program or a NASCAR program or whatever the case is, and when you go back to them, they're no longer interested. So that is, I think, the number one reason against it, but it's still something worthy of discussion, but I think that's why you probably don't want to do it, and you just kind of work behind the scenes with all these groups, and maybe you try to piece two of the smaller groups together. Somebody wants to come in, Say, hey, how about how about this? Why don't you meet so-and-so over here that has an entry who's always struggling to get it properly funded? Why don't the two of you pull your resources together and have one really strong entry? Well, the fluidity of the, the car count also depends on the teams that are legitimate. I, I, and all teams are legitimate, but you know, with a Ganassi going to four cars or a Merrill McLaren going to three next year. I mean, you're mm-hmm. increasing, you, you know, you say, are those extra two or three cars worth it? Yeah. That, you know, in that case, that extra car at Aero McLaren, that's a pretty competitive car. So, yeah. you know, you know, and, and you need, you need some of the smaller teams to be around a dry and Reinbold if they want to participate because they are what makes the Indy 500 field, the, the field that we all want, and that's 33 cars. But, uh, you know, it's it's a tough thing. I, I like the franchise model. I think creating value uh, for those franchises and making it worth something to the teams, and we've seen it now in NASCAR, I think that's a good business plan. Uh, I don't know all the ins and outs, but just on the surface, if you can make your franchise worth something, the way Chip Ganassi was able to, you know, sell his franchises in NASCAR and, and cash out, if you will, 
that gave him, you know, some equity to to work from and to build toward, and and it's worked out in his favor. And I think there will be other teams that benefit in the future as well. You know, I don't think I don't want to see it at twenty four cars, but I could see a cap at twenty eight or thirty. Uh, and you, if you could, if you had a strong enough field where you had twenty eight cars on a regular basis. Uh, I might be able to see that. But otherwise, I think this model is, you know, working behind the scenes, as you talked about. I think that's the way you have to go. Um, for the love of Indy says, does having 33 entries help the quality of the Indianapolis 500 any more than having, say, 27 or 28 cars? The more, the merrier. I think that's very different. Uh, and, and this may not go over the right way, but in reality, no, it doesn't change the quality of the race from 31 or 32 to 33 cars, but 33 is more than a number. And that event, 33 is special. So th- there's more to it. But, you know, if, if you didn't tell us, if you're not standing there counting on the grid, would anyone notice the difference between 33, 32 and the quality of the race? Uh, well, I guess you would when the rows of three are lined up, but you get what I'm saying. It doesn't change the entertainment factor, but most of us agree that you want 33 for the Indy 500, if at all possible. But these other races, there is no magic number. It's it's never been a certain number. Maybe the more the merrier. You know, I don't know. If you've got three cars at the back that are two and a half seconds off, is that improving the quality of the race? Maybe the entertainment factor, because you have to lap them once or twice. But otherwise, it's, you know, generally speaking, you know, I would say generally speaking, people aren't coming to see those cars. But there is a car that's run in the 20s for the last year and a half that people are coming to see uh, and is helping the television ratings. So uh, I think it just works itself out. It's a conversation that will be held behind closed doors. I don't see any caps coming as far as car count, but it's something that's been discussed and I wanted to, to throw it out there uh, just a little bit from Jeff Cherneski. It was reported last week that IndyCar is considering promoting some events on their own. Why the change in thought process and what's the series doing to make this change? So this is a story that I saw over the weekend on the race.com. And, and this isn't new. IndyCar has done this in the past and they're definitely doing it this year with the Iowa doubleheader, and that was critical. It was the only way they were going to get Iowa back on the schedule, and they needed ovals out of this. It's been a couple of days since I've read the story, but what I got out of this is going back to uh, Milwaukee is that conversation is real. Uh, I believe the story – okay, here it is. The race can confirm that meetings were held between IndyCar and Milwaukee at the Pagoda during the Indy 500, uh, and I, I assume they mean during the Indy 500 event time and that is always a venue that crops up and ovals are discussed it can let's see here's a quote from mark miles i think we have current discussions about what would have to be done to improve the track at the fairgrounds and do we all agree whether it would or wouldn't be during the annual july august wisconsin state fair it wouldn't i think it's one of those places where really we would probably step in as the promoter that's not on the cards for next year but it's an active conversation and that kind of goes in with texas quotes on texas 
It's the event that they and we would say is great racing this year, but the event is not what we want, not to our expectations. So we're still talking with them. We'd like to be able to stay there. That may be a situation where we're involved in promoting it in some way. We were thinking if we want to be the promoter largely about going into other cities, more of a street circuits, it could equally apply to ovals. It's complicated, right? And we particularly value ovals. We'd like to have ovals before the Indy 500. So then Texas fills that role. If you're going to do that, you've got to be warm. You've got to go to an oval where NASCAR isn't yet scheduled, basically in the same time frame. So we'll see. I think probably the likelihood is we'll be back to Texas next year. We'll see how we can improve it. The challenge there is what if Texas doesn't happen, then what do you have for an oval at this late in the stage? Because this article also says, I don't expect any changes, Mark Miles says, for next year's schedule. So hopefully they can come to some sort of uh, arrangement for Texas. And we mentioned that after the race, that, hey, maybe that's the way to go. Maybe you have to invest in a little bit more and help co-promote that event. So the question in the tweet was, what's changed in the model of promoting races? And obviously it's not ideal for the sanctioning body to be the promoter of the race. I mean, in many cases, it's not ideal, I should say. Uh, the difference is, and what's changed, is that Roger Penske's more willing to uh, take a chance on an event for the betterment of the sport mm-hmm. and has the resources to you know, make that happen or skirt the edge financially more so than, than maybe past administrations were. They're, they were watching the bottom line a little closer, uh, or at least didn't have the flexibility that Roger has. And and Roger, when he goes into an event and promoting an event, he's he's determined that it's going to be a success. And he's done that at Detroit. He's going to do that in Iowa. You can see it coming. And yep. uh, so I think under the right model, under the right situation, Roger's willing to do that and take that chance, uh, maybe more so than, than the past administration was. So that's and what's I think changed. The, and I think – in uh, somewhat out of need, but also out of the ability to be able to do it properly, which I think they will, because I think they're going to be two for two in successful events. Detroit is very successful, and I think Iowa is going to be very successful as well. And the other nugget out of this story is something that I had read about a couple of months ago. And I know from talking to Ricardo Juncos, you know, he's been efforting and interested in something in his home country in Argentina for a while, and there appears to be at least some momentum for that, uh, whether that's going to happen, I don't know. And in this story, asked if funding the event was the biggest problem. Hunkos replied, no, I think the difficulty now is to see if IndyCar wants to go or not. We can make it happen. It's just the fact that IndyCar needs to decide. Roger Penske has said before that we need to focus on North America. Uh, I, you know, I think what could change his mind on that is if somebody were to write a big enough check and it's got to be several times more what a normal sanctioning fee would be one it's more expensive you got to get everybody there uh and then two you have to figure out calendar and so forth and i could see an exhibition i don't think that matters in argentina i don't think the people coming are going to care whether it's part of the championship they're going to want to see cool race cars and some names that they may know and i think you could do that in the off season. And maybe it doesn't need to be the entire field. It's just those that are already signed up. As long as you have 18 plus cars to make an event, I think something like that is viable. And the reason you do this is it would be money for the teams and it'd be good for fans. We're dying to see racing 
in the long off season. I think that'd be a great way to help satiate us going from September to February or March without any kind of racing. So there's what's happening on that front. We'll get to the news today and plenty more to discuss coming up trackside 93.5 and 107.5 the fan. Hi, this is Graham Rahal and you're listening to trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 the fan. A Sunday is going to be Graham's 250th IndyCar start at Mid-Ohio, 12.30 on NBC. I think about a 12.50 green flag, noon airtime here on the radio. All right, because he was so good at it and frankly better than both of us, we are now turning over the read for the Circle City News of the Day to our studio host, Sam Rumsa. Go ahead, Sam. Thanks, guys. Friday night, it's the craziest night of the year at Circle City Raceway. There's an unpredictable school bus figure eight race, plus an insane demo derby, school bus rides, and spectator drags. Bring your street legal car out and compete to win 250 bucks. Circle City Raceway is at the Marion County Fairgrounds and is racing all weekend. Check them out on Facebook at Circle City Raceway. Sam is frankly better at talking about school bus racing than I am, so I think we're going to continue to roll down this path. <laughs> News of the day, Kurt, is... Well, we're going to start with, uh, we have a lot of news actually to get to in this program, but one that we won't spend a lot of time with, but it's still interesting. The ESPYs announced their finalists for best driver of the year, of the last calendar year. The IndyCar representation is Alex Pelot. No surprise, I guess, when you think about uh you know, how consistent and how he kind of came out of nowhere to win that championship. But he's up against Steve Torrance from NHRA, uh, Kyle Larson from NASCAR, and what I think should be the prohibitive favorite if you were just voting uh, from from a motorsport standpoint, Max Verstappen in, in Formula One. But this will be interesting. It's a little bit of a popularity contest. So the participation by the fan bases and the IndyCar fan bases have always been strong in their participation. Oh, come on. In its participation, I should say. Uh, so um, we'll see how it There's goes. One but it's at least good record on ESPN. Let's let's move on. <laughs> it's it's going to be whoever the Formula One driver is. They could choose the Williams driver as the nominee, and ESPN is going to have that driver win it. I will get excited about the ESPYs again when they ever actually – so this time it might actually make air on ESPN. But when it's been an IndyCar driver before, it's one of those they present during the commercial break and no one sees. So, eh, if uh, ESPN – I don't even think they showed it when ABC and ESPN were carrying IndyCar. It's been a while. So there you go, but it's still worth a mention. And if I'm Alex Pillow, hey, hey, congratulations. That's worth noting. But uh, I would not make plans to attend, Alex, unless they offer you a free trip. The swag bag is good, though. So if they uh, actually, if they do invite you, go ahead and go, because there are a lot of nice parting gifts. And that's our news of the day. I was just going to say, you get to hobnob with all the big shots. So okay. there you go. <laughs> all right. Sorry, Sam. Saturday night at the Tom Wood Group Indianapolis Speedrome, powered by Lincoln Tech, it's autograph night. Come out and meet the drivers and see the cars up close, including figure eight cars, which run a wild and unpredictable 75-lap race on Saturday. Enjoy family-friendly racing action, great food, free parking, and outrageous fun. That's this Saturday at the Indianapolis Speedrome at the corner of Kitley and Brookville on Indy's southeast side. Info at speedrome.com. All right, I know we're behind. But I, I want to make sure I mention this before I forget. Salute to Stan Lear, one of the legends of Indiana radio, Stan. So I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about uh, radio business here with, with the company that I'm not sure who ha 
appeared on WIBC or the company before Emmis took over. I'm one of the few holdovers from that. I was I was an intern at the time, but was on the air a few times. Stan Lear actually was working and anchoring news at WIBC pre-Emmis. Emmis, I think, bought the station maybe in 1994. And Stan, and I think maybe others, Eric Berman might be in that category. Eric's been around for a while. Pat Sullivan started about the same time that I did as a weekend host on WIBC. But Stan's one of the best, a really, really good man. And he's going to be retiring. I think this Friday is Stan's last day anchoring the news on WIBC. So make sure you're listening to him. And just wanted to wish Stan the best. I don't see Stan much anymore, but we used to to share the hallways and speak a lot more. But a super, super man. And I think one of the best to ever do what he does. And that's anchor the news and big events. And and he's done it for close to 30 years on WIBC. So salute to Stan. All right, we continue with plenty more coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is Scott Dixon, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hour number two of the big program. Thanks for joining us. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, Sam Rumsa in our studios in downtown Indianapolis, the drivehubler.com studios. Podcast is always available after we're done tonight. Uh, that is available at iTunes, Spotify, Sam always tweets something out. I retweet it as well. Coming up in about a half hour, young man who did his first time in an Indy car yesterday. Benjamin Peterson, one of the uh, front runners in Indy Lights. And he will be racing in mid-Ohio this weekend with the entire road to Indy. So Benjamin will join us coming up in about a half hour. He was actually quickest of the four cars that tested yesterday at Sebring. The other three were the Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan drivers. There was testing last week, Kurt, at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, I can't remember if we talked about the Iowa test on the show, if that was before or after, but there's been a, a decent amount of testing. There was the Iowa test. Yeah, that was before last week's show. And then what I took of note from the IMS test, you know, yes, the times are out there, but I was really happy that Simona De Silvestro had a test day. I think that is greatly going to help her chances to be more competitive coming up this weekend at Mid-Ohio. Agreed 100% on both both aspects. One, that she got the test. Two, how much it will help her. Colton Herter was quickest. You expect that. Two-tenths quicker than Alexander Rossi, his teammate, and Pato Ward, Felix Rosenquist were close. But there were only eight drivers there. Uh, but the fact that uh, Simona was there, yeah, that, that's a huge benefit. Huge benefit. So good for her. Uh, And we'll talk more with Benjamin about the test at Sebring yesterday. I'm sure that was quite comfy in Florida in the summertime. I've never been there beyond March. So I guess I've always been there from November to March. But uh, that's, well, you know what? Right now, generally speaking, it's actually been nice here the last couple of days. But generally speaking, for the last couple of weeks, I'm not sure it matters where you are unless, oh, say you're in Alaska. It's just just going to be hot. So Sebring... 97 is probably not that much worse than 91. Well, it's it's not the temperature, it's the humidity level and and certainly it's not been quite like that here, but you know, to your point about Alaska, if about 58 degrees and a nice jacket most days was really nice this time of the year. So maybe we'll talk about some of the other racing events from this past weekend. I got my weekly call from Paul Tracy yesterday morning. I uh, answered the phone and it was Elio bleep and dumped me. <laughs> and that was a pretty blatant dump by Elio. 
uh, who I think is starting to think, hey, this is how you do it in stock cars. So I get up there. Uh, so he hasn't quite mastered the, what was it, Earnhardt, Earnhardt used to say, you know, I just wanted to rattle his cage a little bit uh, as you move people around at Bristol. Uh, Elio was one of many that had other people angry at him, but he won another heat race and the boss got really angry. Yeah, I thought, uh, I, I mean, Tony Stewart knows far more about about how to drive a race car than all of the other <laughs> participants probably combined. But, uh, you know, he knows, he knows what's going on, but I thought he went a little over the top with miles row. I didn't see the whole thing. I didn't see Ernie Francis. The, I mean, Ernie Francis, sorry. Um, uh, I just thought it was a little bit of an overreaction. You know, there was a crash that was happening in front of them. And, and if that's what he was, you know, that's where Ernie Francis came down and, and they made the contact. I Again, I didn't see the whole what led up to it and the whole race, but I just thought even though Tony said, you know, I have great respect for Ernie Francis and, and he's a really good race car driver and he's a friend, but, you know, he went on and on and saying nice things. I just didn't think he needed to go up and grab the young man. I mean, yeah. he's got him by the back of the collar. To me, that's it too much. It didn't seem that egregious what Ernie did, uh, and much less than than everyone else. I was glad that because that's tough. Uh, one, this is Tony Stewart. You are a young driver racing in Indy Lights. Yes, you're a seven time Trans Am champ. So Ernie Francis Jr. has credentials, but he doesn't have Tony Stewart's credentials. So that's part one. Part two is the guy is your boss. He is the owner. He can decide who gets to race. You are there at the pleasure of Tony Stewart if you're going to race in SRX. So that makes it delicate, and that's why not a whole lot of people have roughed up Tony Stewart, and he didn't care for that very much. So my first thought out of all this was, uh, and I only saw social media clips. I forgot to, my, my season pass didn't record it. I have only seen YouTube clips and what Paul has sent me. Um, my first thought was, good for you guys. You know, this is mastermind marketing is that the first race didn't really have enough drama. We need to stir it up. You know, Paul has no filter. He tells the truth and he swears to me that there has not been any kind of mandate to go out and create drama or anything else. Now, maybe Tony just decided to do this in his own mind and was looking for any opportunity he could to get angry. And poor Ernie Francis Jr. was the closest one that came to roughing up Stewart at all. So he took it out on him and everybody else and said, we're not going to have this anymore. And he is, I'm sure, paying for the crash damage. And that's taking out of the profits. And, okay, so yes, it looks great that you're getting almost a million viewers on CBS, but I, I don't know the financials, but this cannot be going that well. Um, well, you're getting you know, I, Saturday night reruns of Dateline or whatever CBS, I, I guess Dateline's an NBC show or whatever they would normally have on rates higher and does not cost nearly as much to produce. That's the challenge with motorsports is that it is so expensive to do from a production standpoint and CBS and, uh, the Montauk group and uh, a couple of other entities are paying these drivers and, everything else so there's a lot of pressure on everybody involved but back to the original point paul says this is legit that they are really angry at each other at this point so we'll see if that helps them coming up next saturday night no i think they they looked legitimately upset uh 
the other thing, you know, Tony's point, not just about the money that it costs for crash damage. He's got a small team of guys that's putting these yeah. race cars back together. And and when you tear up as many cars as they did in this particular race, you know, it just it just wears on on the crew guys. And, you know, it's not like a normal race where you have 24 different crews fixing their own car. This is pretty much one small group of guys fixing all the cars. That's how it's worked in these these like IROC type events, but uh, a lot of work for those guys. And I know Stuart was legitimately uh, upset about the the workload that was going to go into it. But yeah, I felt for Eddie Francis Jr. I didn't think it was egregious. The crash was in front of him. Uh, he's slowing down. He's trying to get you know his car in the best position to avoid the the damage ahead of him. And and then Tony makes a big scene and and grabs him by the cuff and. I just thought that was a little too much. But if drama is what they need, they certainly got it. Yep. And then there was the IMSA race from this weekend. Did did you follow any of this in the aftermath after we left television? And I didn't see I, I the love, aftermath. I, I love sports car racing, but it's already confusing to begin with. And let's just go ahead and make it a little more confusing. So uh, be glad that uh, you don't have these kind of issues in IndyCar. It's already challenging because of balanced performance, and you're trying to manage that every single week. So this was the, the drama after the sports car race. Is, uh, and then, oh, by the way, we need to get to another very significant uh, moment from Saturday, one of the great moments of the year. But from the, the WeatherTech race on Sunday, it's a six-hour race at Watkins Glen, and there was a lightning delay four and a half hours in wasn't even raining at the track but lightning struck eight miles or so away so it's a red flag and everybody sits and waits and the clock continues to run and they eventually stopped the clock for about 10 minutes because i think there was some concern hey are we even going to get to finish at all there might have been discussion can we go over the six hours stop it and go longer no unfortunately we have a hard out on the tv window so they resumed racing with 20-some minutes to go. The green came out with just over 20 minutes to go. Maybe the uh, red was lifted with 30 minutes. Well, here's the problem. And and we call the finish, and there are five classes, five winners. And then about an hour and a half after the race, we learned that the, the winners in two classes have been DQ'd or sent to last in their class because of not meeting minimum drive time. So each driver is required to drive at least an hour and a half in the, the pro-am classes and in the top prototype class, it's only 30 minutes. So the way they did this is, okay, we didn't run a full six hours. We ran five hours and nine minutes. So let's divide it up. If it's normally an hour and a half, it becomes an hour 17. Well, the problem is there are three drivers required in some of these cars and there's just not enough time. So one driver drives the first 90 minutes to two hours. The next driver drives 90 minutes or so. And then the third driver is planning on driving the final 90 plus minutes to meet drive time and finish. So these teams are being required to guess when there might be a lightning delay and plan accordingly. And I believe they all have a very strong beef. It took until I think late yesterday, or actually I think it was today before IMSA confirmed the finishing results. And not only were the two winners sent to the back, 10 cars 
were sent to the back of their class, one for a driver driving a, uh, an hour, 16 and eight seconds, you know, coming up 52 seconds short. Uh, and it's all random as to when the red flag was going to be withdrawn. And what no one understands is, well, the, the driver was in the car, uh, was planning to drive. The clock continues to tick. Why doesn't drive time continue to go at that point? So these are the challenges of sports car racing. And it's maybe why it's always going to be a little bit hard to bring it to the masses. And it's more for us. It's it's what we do on IndyCar off weekends. And even when IndyCar is going, I make sure I watch the DVR of the event because I, I love the racing and I love the personalities and the unique stories. Did you know that Lola Cars has been purchased, is, is being resurrected? Over the weekend, one of the gentleman drivers, meaning one of the wealthy guys that drives in GTD Pro-Am, his name is Till Bechtelsheimer. Uh, he's done quite well for himself in the business world. He has purchased the name and rights to Lola Cars and wants to, you know, he knows that there's no competition in IndyCar, um, but he wants to see what he can do with the brand. You know, maybe it's in sports cars and he didn't rule out down the day of down, down the road of seeing, hey, is there any way anybody would let us have a Lola IndyCar again? Uh, what I could see maybe more for them is there are single make Formula Car series like Tatus in USF 2000 and Indy Pro 2000, you know, Delar and Indy Lights and, and My Gal and Formula 4. I could see them looking to do some junior Formula Car categories. It's going to be tough to get into IndyCar, but I thought that was worth mentioning. Now, the big story of the weekend is Saturday, and this is up on Peacock, and it'll air on USA on Friday, I think, at 3 o'clock. But how cool that Robert Wickens won a race again, did it in legit fashion, qualified third, was first when he got out halfway through the race, turned it over to his teammate Mark Wilkins, and the Brian Herta Hyundai team won at Watkins Glen on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, it was very cool. And and when it came across my social media, uh, I was I was generally genuinely happy uh kind of let out a you know yes kind of deal i was i was really happy for him and and you know in some respects you, you know you know the challenges but i don't think any of us have any sense for how much he's gone through um we you know we follow the story very closely we we certainly are with him in spirit but we've not been with him and the day-to-day -day grind, what it takes to get back to the top of his craft. He's got a, you know, ways to go before he gets where he wants to. Uh, but it's it's such an uh, inspiring story, and he's such a, I guess you would say, he's such a character who you can support. He's such an interesting mm -hmm. person. He's a he's a good friend. He's to a lot of people in this this sport, and and they you know he's just they've taken. He's taken um, – he's really, you know, developed some close bonds with people in our sport, and and um, and it's easy to see why when you're around him. He's He's got such an it factor, and uh, none of us wants to have our craft taken away from us, but he's still working to get it back, and, and this is a good – not a first step because he's been taking steps, but this is a good step. I was really happy to be a part of the broadcast. It was really cool to be a, a part of that. And Robbie was really stoic. And I'm not sure he really knew how to react because it's the first time he's ever won a race when he wasn't in the car. You know, it's a different dynamic. It's the first sports car race he's won. He kind of had that same feeling at Daytona when they finished on the podium. He had done his job. He was out of the car. And that's even, I think, worse sitting there. And he's 
you know, we keep showing shots of him and he's watching Peacock on his phone and it's 45 seconds behind. So he said he would, you know, hear a reaction from the crowd and oh, wondered what happened and nothing's happening on my phone and has to wait for 45 seconds to see what's going on. But, um, you know, I'm going to guess internally he was ecstatic you know, and the next thing, I'm sure he wants to take the checkered flag, be the second driver. That's a little more challenging because it takes an extra five seconds or so. He's a, He has finished a race this year, come in as the second driver, but that just takes them an extra few seconds to help get him strapped in and so forth. But, um, you know, I know he wants to do, do the WeatherTech series. That's what he wants to move up to. I wouldn't rule out the Indy 500. If the rules are adjusted to make that doable for him, with hand controls, I could see that I've not talked to him about this, but it, it would not surprise me that that's something that seems a lot more doable. You know, I suppose you could always make the argument that, that maybe a hand control is an advantage in some ways or something he has on a road or a street course situation, but I cannot see how it would be any kind of advantage at the Indy 500 uh, one way or the other, or conversely, a disadvantage. And it's probably more likely that it'd just be really tough to be as good in an Indy car on hand controls. Maybe, maybe not, but seems like they configured that out on an Indy car. And maybe that's something we see from Robert Wickens in the near future. And he gets to go back home with a win now to Canada, racing at Mosport at Canadian Tire Motorsports Park coming up this weekend. Their race will be Saturday. That will also be live on Peacock and um, broadcast uh, later on USA. Okay, well, we have a moment in this segment. So I don't even think I've told you this, Kurt, but uh, we're going to be doing something uh, to to benefit some of the people that that help support Jackson. So full disclosure on how some of this works. People ask me about, you know, trying to raise money for a junior formula car driver. The simplest way is the way we try to do it is just straight partnership, sponsorship, and then try to provide a return and publicity. And, you know, in many cases, it's hospitality for our partners at the track and things like that. Uh, some other ways are direct partnerships with someone like the IU Simon Cancer Center and helping them raise money and doing a big event like we did at the Burger Bash, and we'll do some other things for them. And then in, in some cases, it's you meet someone who's done well in life and sort of donates to the program. And that's frankly how a lot of junior formula car racing is. That's why they don't have to put stickers on the cars is someone has simply given money or maybe it's just family money that's paying for things. So one of the people that is, for lack of a better term, yes, I know we do some some publicity for Chernoff Cosmetic Surgery as a partner, um, but it's somewhat out of the kindness of Dr. Chernoff's heart that he's donated to Jackson's program. So we do everything we can to help the things that these people are interested in. And a lot of people have done well in life have causes. So that's something with a platform I can help with a little bit. So we're going to do another event at Prime 47 on Brickyard Weekend, the Brickyard Prelude Party coming up on Thursday, July 28th. Remember IndyCar and NASCAR racing that weekend with track action starting on Friday. By the way, uh, I'll slide this in there. We're going to have trackside shows all week, each night at seven o'clock and then beyond the bricks with uh, Jake and Mike at eight o'clock from the 25th through the 29th. But we'll do this again. We did something similar last year, but this is going to be more informal. That's why we're calling it a party, because we got a band, Kurt. Clayton Anderson is going to be playing, who's really, really good. He's a country singer. I think he's just as much of a pop rock, rock singer as well. Are you familiar with Clayton? 
Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm he's interested. good. So, yeah, so he's he's donating his time to come out and join us as well. We'll get some IndyCar drivers. I think I can get a few NASCAR drivers that I'm familiar with, the NBC broadcasters, to come out Prime 47 from 6.30 until 9 o'clock, the downtown location, the only location that this Prime 47 owns, Prime 47 Indy Steakhouse. And I've got my buddy Hinch signed up. He is going to help co-host the live auction with me, uh, the performance with Clayton, and then we'll have appetizers, drinks, full dinner buffet, and more. $150 going straight to the foundation with proceeds benefiting the Survivors of Violence Foundation. So I told this story last year. Dr. Chernoff met someone who was a victim of the Oklahoma City bombing with major injuries uh, many years ago. And they both, Roy uh, Grizel, I believe is her name, started this foundation. And then it's kind of advanced to... You know, victims of domestic violence see that reminder in the mirror every single day. So he is donating his skills to try to erase those marks the best that he can do. And the proceeds for this go to him giving away his services at Chernoff Cosmetic Surgery through the Survivors of Violence Foundation. It's violencesurvivor.org is their website. Uh, I will tweet out a link to buy tickets here later tonight after the show is over. And there's a, I know there's a link. I wrote a blog on Jackson's website at jacksonleeracing.com. If you go to the blog site, the link is already there. We also are going to do what we did for the Burger Bash. If someone wants to be the title sponsor, I know Prime 47 felt very good about what we were able to bring them as far as uh, publicity and just donating back to the cause. Well, they're already involved. They're already donating the restaurant to us that night. But if you'd like to be the title sponsor of this event, and we have a couple of other levels as well. Just just shoot me a note, and we can hook up your company, and that should be all tax deductible on this front. So that's what's coming up uh, July 28th on Thursday night at Prime 47 Indy Steakhouse for the Survivors of Violence Foundation. All right, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk with Indy Lights driver, who's now driven an Indy car. Benjamin Peterson is coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is David Malukas, and you're listening to Trackside. IndyCar at Mid-Ohio coming up this weekend. Noon radio coverage, 12.30 on NBC, about a 12.53-ish green flag coming up. So nice, quick pre-race. We'll get things going. And Indy Lights is also in action on Peacock, 10.30 coverage coming up on Sunday morning. So hope you can join us for that. One of those that will be a strong contender this weekend, driving for Global Racing Group with HMD Motorsports in the number 24 car. Fresh off his first IndyCar test, Benjamin Peterson joins us now. Benjamin, how are you? How's it going, Kevin? Good to, to talk to you here. Good to talk to you. you are, you've just gotten back, back to Indiana uh, after getting a chance to test an IndyCar for Hunkos Hollinger yesterday at Sebring Raceway, where, by the way, of the four cars, three veteran drivers, one a rookie but really talented, but three drivers in the series from Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, and the spies say that you were the quickest in the afternoon testing. How was it for you? Uh, yeah, it was amazing. I, I just got back to Indianapolis, home here, but, I mean, what a day yesterday. First day in an Indy car. We finished the day fastest. Um, went through a full test program with, with the whole Home Coast team, and, Man, what a car. It's just so fun to drive. It was nice to go to a track I've tested a lot in Indy Lights. Um, just an amazing, amazing experience and, and so looking forward to, to getting back in the car. 
What's challenged you? What was the biggest uh, obstacle you had to overcome to try to get up to speed pretty quickly? Yeah, so the the first run on track, my, my first ever time in an IndyCar, uh, we did an install lap right away, and then it was pretty much straight into a 10-lap run. And uh, when I came into the box, we were only two, three-tenths off what pretty much all the Ray Hall team cars were running. And uh, wow. <laughs> we kind of looked looked on the at ourselves. We're like, okay, we're right in the ballpark uh, to get going. And then from there, we, we started doing the, the test items the team had planned on doing. Um, and, and the whole day, you know, we were very, very close. The morning, it, it was kind of that two to three-tenths. Um, we kind of knew that Ray Hall, it looked like they were running some push-to-pass test items with, with Honda from what we could kind of hear on their radios and everything like that. So we just stayed focused on our program. Um, I was focusing on the driving, making sure giving good feedback to the team. Um, and really by midday, everything we had planned on from a test perspective um, to accomplish the whole day, we had achieved all those things by midday. So we were way ahead of schedule, and then that left the whole afternoon open to, to trying even more creative things, things that I liked in the car that we found out. Um, and then we finished the day <laughs> fastest, so that, that was a bit surreal. So it's not super shocking that, that you were fastest because, as you said, you know the track, um, you're a good driver. But I'm still wondering, after that first run, when you're presumably just getting a feel of the car and you're within a couple of tenths, are you asking – Hey, are we legal? Are we underweight? What's going on here? <laughs> no, I, I know we were legal because when I did my driver fit, we they did all my equivalency weight and everything, so we were spot on with the weight. Um, the, the biggest difference, really, with the car is um, is the brakes. It, now that it has carbon brakes, the the stopping power is just crazy. You you're carrying more speed into every corner because you got more power. It's a heavier car, but you can brake so much later. You can you can just attack the brake. There's no locking because you got all the aero, and it's just so impressive the, the the stopping power. So so that was kind of the biggest difference. The dampers compared to an Indy Lights car, any junior Formula car, is so much more developed. So the way they absorb bumps is just it's so much easier. Um, you know, from a physical standpoint, we I knew this Indy car would be my next step. Um, so I already started training specifically for the jump to IndyCar a year ago. So when I had my opportunity yesterday, I, I felt really good physically in the car. Um, so, so that was just a really nice feeling when, when you put a lot of hard work into it to, to have it pay off yesterday. Benjamin Peterson is joining us fresh so off his first Cameron. IndyCar test yesterday at Sebring. Go ahead, Kurt. No, I was, I was going to ask you, obviously, uh, it looked like you were going to test with Foyt, and now you run this test with Hunkos. Just talk about you, know, you spent so much time with Foyt. What are some of the differences, maybe? And then what does this mean for the future? I mean, I assume this sure. was just a test with Hunkos, but but it could mean to something else. Yeah, uh, to answer your question, this this was uh, just a, a test with Hunkos, simply just to get seat time in an IndyCar because that is the biggest focus right now for next year to prep for IndyCar is just to get seat time. Um, the Foyt test that was planned at IMS, that was canceled due to a rules complication. So so the in-season test at, at IMS, that was only for in-season drivers. So that was a rule that kind of came up a little bit later. So that's why I wasn't oh. able to to take part in that test. It was only current IndyCar drivers. Um, so the Hunkos test came up as an opportunity, and it, it was just a great 
great way to, to get seat time in an IndyCar for the first time and, and start to prepare for next year. Let me ask you this question this way. If an opportunity came about to do an IndyCar race or two or three or whatever this year, would you be open to that? 100%. <laughs> as long as there's no conflict with, with my Indy Lights campaign where we're fighting for a championship, that I mean, that would be a fantastic opportunity. Um, both for this year, but, but really thinking ahead, you know, what better way to get ready for IndyCar next year than to be exposed to a race this year? Um, yeah, to answer your question, 100%, as long as there's no conflict with lights. So your teammate last year, and it's your, your team is Global Racing Group, uh, and your dad is, is he the principal? He's a partner. Your dad is, is very much involved in that, and he came from the Formula One world, so he knows what he's doing in motorsport. And your teammate last year, David Malukas, his dad was is HMD racing, and when he moved up to IndyCar, his dad moved with him and became a partner on a team. Maybe a better question for your dad, but does he have an interest in extending his motorsports business relationship with a team in IndyCar starting next season? Man, that's a great question. You know, I'm, I'm slightly curious as well now that you asked <laughs> that. That would be a great question for him, and I'm, I'm not able to answer that right now. But, um, no, Global Racing Group is, is a great brand. Um, we'll, we'll see how it can help into the future with IndyCar. But um, to answer your question right now, I'm more so just focused on getting my testing in, working out, you know, where are my different, what are my different options for next year? And man, what an exciting um, process it is right now. I'm, I'm really enjoying every minute of it. And you are still in the fight for the Indy Lights Championship this year within range. I know Linus Lundquist has been really on a, on a tear most of the last couple of months or so, but it's still within range. So I'm wondering is it going to take any adjustment to get used to that car? There's not a whole lot of practice time on a race weekend. Yeah. I mean, we're going into to mid Ohio here feeling really good. When we tested there, it's got to be a month or two ago. We were very strong. I think we were about half a second clear of the field at our test. So we had a, a great car there. I, I was feeling really good in the car. I'm really excited to, to take what I learned in the Indy car yesterday and, and apply that to the lights car. Cause I think there's some, really good values you can pass down that will turn into lap time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just focused on, you know, the mentality hasn't, it won't change for the second half of the year. Um, we're, we're going to try our best every weekend to, to get race wins. Um, you know, we got some really cool tracks we're coming up to. We got two ovals. We got a brand new track in Nashville. Then we go to the West coast. So it's, I'm really, really excited for the second half of the year. In, in other sports, uh, we talk about guys who make great coaches sat on the bench and, and watched other people play. This season, you sat on the sort of sat on the bench and watched this IndyCar program work at Foyt. What, what are the things that you've learned that, that have been really helpful for you? Uh, because you're not driving the car. I mean, you can't really yep. understand what the driver is going through. 100% because you're not the one driving it. So, but what has been beneficial in that, in that experience? Yeah. Great question. I mean, the, the best way to describe it is this year at Foyt has, I've basically been a driver at Foyt, but I haven't driven the race car, but I've driven, or I've been a part of, of everything else that goes into a, a test day or a race weekend, every meeting, 
you know, Kyle Kirkwood's been super open to me about what he's been learning. Um, you know, even before my test yesterday, I called Kyle just to ask for a couple last minute, like, hey, what what'd you go through on your first test day? What do I need to pay attention to? Um, so it's everything from that, you know, simple things within the car, setup things they've tried. You know, it's, he's been really, really open and the team as well. Um, and, and it made my transition yesterday into to the IndyCar a lot more natural. Um, I just kind of knew how the flow would be. I knew, you know, everything from the car side. It, it just made it a lot easier. You know, going back to the, the test with Hunko's Hollinger, uh, I'm going to guess they feel even better about it now. Do you get a sense that they learned something that they can take back and use at other places the rest of the season with Callum Eilat? I, yeah, I, I think that's how we, we finish the day for sure, especially at the midday when we had knocked off all the, the big test items the team wanted to accomplish. The, the afternoon, we just kind of kept working on different things that, that were coming up, and, and we actually found some really big things that I personally really liked in the car. It was some things they've never tried before from a setup perspective, and, and they were pretty eye-opened with, with what it did to the car performance. So I, I definitely think the, the things we did yesterday, I think they'll be able to, to transfer that into to the year right away at Mid-Ohio. Well, Benjamin Peterson has been knocking on the door for a couple of years now. So close several times. I think, what, second, fourth times this last year and a half, uh, twice this year. Uh, and it's it's coming soon. Still third in the championship, very much in that mix as well, and now has driven in IndyCar for the first time. Benjamin, congrats. Thank you. We'll see you at Mid-Ohio uh, either tomorrow or Thursday. Thank you, guys. Sounds great. Looking forward to the weekend. Look for Benjamin in the number 24 Global Racing Group with HMD Motorsports Indy Lights Car Sunday morning, 1030 on Peacock, just ahead of IndyCar on NBC. Um, Let's do a good, not long segment, but longer segment. So I'll get out here. We haven't talked about the new Formula One television deal. I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that. and We'll see what we've missed, too, coming up on Trackside. Hi, this is Felix Rosenquist, and you're listening to Trackside. Fun show tonight. Felix, a part of the conversation as well. Double Waved Yellow tweeted in, uh, responding to the question about when we were talking about limiting cars for other events, how much that matters, and, you know, does 33 uh, help the quality of the Indianapolis 500 any more than 27 or 28 in another race? Double Wave Yellow said the actual quality would not be diminished at all, but the constant parade of everyone in the 463, I think he means 465, uh, doing media hits decrying the end of life, civilization, and the end of all hope if the number of entries fell below 33 would self-immolate the whole series. Wow. But he's right. That is one of the reasons why 33 does matter is because there would be this perception out there. Uh, 33 matters to me. It's an important number. I like history. But I would, more than that, probably be worried that people that would want to slam IndyCar and say, boy, it's headed in the wrong direction. They can't even get 33 cars anymore. That's another reason why it matters from a business standpoint. That's right. And you're absolutely right about that one. And I was thinking earlier on, if you lined up on race morning, only 10 rows, would anybody notice? I mean, yes, if you had one car in row 11, but if you just rode up, put 10 cars on the grid or 10 rows on the grid, I'm not sure anybody counts them. So, but anyway, your point's well taken and, and it does matter. 
All right, media news. We've been wondering how this would get resolved. And Sports Business Journal reported on Friday, I think it was, that ESPN has agreed to pay somewhere between 75 and $90 million per year for the rights for Formula One. Uh, up from, well, at one point it was nothing because they had nowhere to go. It's been $5 million or so reportedly for the last two or three years. This, though, gives them the flexibility to put a small but undetermined number of races exclusively on ESPN+. So we'll see how that goes. Amazon's bid was higher than ESPN's, and it wanted rights to sub-license to a broadcaster, meaning you know they could be involved but uh, put them on NBC or CBS or ABC. Comcast's bid wanted to incorporate Peacock in a big way. Netflix made an offer, but its bid wasn't close on money. ESPN still plans to use the Sky Sports broadcast, uh, and they intend for the races to be presented essentially the way they are now relative to a commercial-free experience. So that's the big question that fans are asking. When you are going from 5 to $75-plus million, can you still be commercial-free? Yeah, we give a lot of uh, credit to Drive to Survive about the boom in America, in Formula One popularity, but it coincides with, out of a m matter of they had no other choice, they had to run a commercial free, and that helped. That really helped. Can they still do that? I suspect we're going to see some side-by-side. -side. I think that's probably the way it will go. Uh, I don't think, maybe they'll have something where it's not a guaranteed spot break that's going to run, that uh, is if we get a full safety car, We'll go ahead and slide one in, and we'll do a make good if we can't do that. But the Formula One fan base would be pretty outraged if you started throwing in commercials again. So then the next question would be, all right, if that works for them, can that possibly be applied to other motorsports? It's going to be tough, but it's definitely one to keep an eye on moving forward. Yeah, I think the side-by-side -side helps it. And if you have a safety car situation, you could slide in a commercial without too much uh, uproar. But I like the fact they're keeping the Sky Sport uh, broadcast. I think that's good. I think that's a good move. All right, we're out of time tonight. Thanks to Sam Rumsa. For Kurt Cabin, I'm Kevin Lee. Thanks to Benjamin Peterson for joining us. Podcast up in a few minutes. We'll see you next Tuesday night here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.